Awesome. Really excited for this series. Uh, when you came in, uh, you should have seen one of these uh, sort of uh, participant guides. This is for our church. This is what our life groups will be going through. Uh, if you didn't sign up for a group for whatever reason, that, that's cool. You can, we want you to go through this as well uh, over the next seven weeks as we look at Exodus uh, chapter 1 through chapter uh, 7, 17. I do want to thank some awesome folks that created these guides, our content writers, Allie Trout, Karen Hess, and Lauren Frost, as well as uh, my favorite graphic designer, Crystal Seaman. I'm really thankful for these women that love God's word and love uh, helping connect God's word to your heart. So I encourage you to grab this uh, uh, on your way out. If you didn't have one, there's more, I believe, at the hub and follow along with us over the next uh, seven weeks. Next weekend, uh, we are turning 20 or celebrating our 20th anniversary, which we're really excited about. Yep, you can clap. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is not the DMV. You can make noise in church, Okay. Um, and so we, have, we, we still have two big areas of need. One is um, if you go on our events page, you can sign up to bring a side dish or a dessert. Uh, also, we still need about 15, 10 to 15 more people to help us with setup, traffic flow for next Sunday. If you're available to do that and help us in that way, we'd love for you to get on our events page, sign up today, or stop by the hub. We will be sectioning off different parts of the parking lot for our cookout after the second service. So if you're physically able to, uh, we'd encourage you to park on the other side of the street uh, by the Holiday Inn where we used to uh, park there every weekend. We still have the rights to those spots. And so we'd encourage you to maybe start a new rhythm. As you can see, this room is already filling up. The parking lot's already filling up. And we need to make more spaces for new friends, which is really, really cool. Um, so I, I can't wait to celebrate our anniversary with you guys next, uh, next weekend. Life is really good until it isn't. Uh, we tend to fixate uh, our thoughts and our hearts and minds in, in trying to hold on to the good times. And there's just some people that just live in the past, right? Um, I think of the Napoleon Dynamite's uncle, right? His, his highlight was being a quarterback in high school, and for some reason, he can never let it go, right, throughout the movie. Life is really good until it isn't. My wife and I are really uh, in a sweet spot right now. Uh, in about three weeks, we are entering the matrix uh, and welcoming our first son. Yep, you can give him a hand. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, I, uh, uh, ladies, obviously I have no idea what childbirth is like for you, uh, but for me, when I was uh, at our first appointment and I heard our son's heartbeat and then I saw a photo, I was like, whoa, this is like, this is actually happening. And so our, our little one is due October 23rd. I do have an awesome lineup of different friends that are going to come and preach uh, over the weeks that I'm out on paternity leave. One, one of one of, and I do have a point before we even get to Exodus chapter 1, one of the very first commands that God gives Adam and Eve and his people, you can find in Genesis 1 verse 28. Moses writes, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, 
Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and everything, uh, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The very first thing that God tells Adam and Eve and tells his people is to have children, start a family. Now, I do want to say this before I move on. In no way are you less than, in no way are you sort of sinning or whatever if you and your spouse cannot have children. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Moses is talking about. And that's definitely what God isn't talking about. I say that out of love because I do have a lot of friends that do struggle uh, in, in that area. The reason why, one of the reasons why uh, the very first command in the Bible is to start a family is because we are created to be image bearers. We are created in God's image. In Genesis 1, 26 to 27, Moses writes, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That's kind of weird. Uh, God created man in his own image, in his image of God. He created a male and female. He created them. Uh, when I was in middle school, I was annoying my youth pastor, and I'm like, Brad, I want to start reading the Bible on my own and getting confused like the adults. Where do I start? And he's like, just start in the Gospels. And so, okay. So I, I think I started in Luke or Matthew, doesn't matter. But I remember reading the Christmas story, and I'm like, oh, okay, this is when Jesus was born. This is when he existed. And Brad sort of like uh, had a smirk and kind of laughed. He's like, no, Ben, uh, you grew up in this church. Jesus is God. He created the world. Actually, in Genesis chapter 1, when Moses writes that God created us in his image or our image, that's, a, that's plural. Echad, the word for God, is plural. It's what, it's what theologians call the trinity. And so not only do we have a first commandment of being fruitful and multiplying, but we have this first instance or this introduction to the trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You and I were created to be image bearers. We, we resemble our heavenly Father, which is why I think theologically um, we have a hard time seeing humans suffer. I think it's uh, really difficult for us to watch some of these social, me uh, social media videos that have come out over the last couple of years of, of people dying or, or, or you know, mobs. Like it, it, it's hard for us to watch that content. Right? Not only is it graphic and, and, and cruel, what you're seeing is one image bearer offending and being violent towards another image bearer. Um, rabbis in the, uh, in the first century and even today would say that um, the name of God could be rhythmically pronounced based on its syllables. And the name of God is yo Hey vah Hey. In other words, what the rabbis would say is that when a baby was born, the very first thing you would hear, obviously the screaming, right? Like, what is this world? <laughs> Take me back. Was a baby screaming, and in his or her breath, the rabbis would teach that the baby would say the name of God. yo hey va hey And the rabbis also taught that when that baby grew up and hopefully had a, had, had a great life, when that, when that 
older man or older woman was getting ready to pass on from this life into eternity, their final breath was that person saying the name of God. Yo, hey, va, hey. It's very violent for us to see people oppressed. It's disturbing when we see people, it should be, when we see people suffering. And we see the life and the breath go out of people. Because what we're seeing is an image bearer Right? What we see an image bearer attacking another image bearer. Life is good <laughs> until it isn't. And life was really, really good for Joseph. Joseph was the prince of Egypt. Joseph helped Pharaoh work through a famine. Through Joseph's taxation policy, he made Pharaoh very, very wealthy. And Joseph and Pharaoh were um, pr- pretty pretty kindred spirits. Joseph worked himself into a job where he was like second or third in command in Egypt. Life was really good for the Israelites. And I'm I'm saying this to shock you because if you're familiar with Exodus, you're like, Ben, isn't there like oppression and slavery going on? Yes. But it's important to know the backstory. Life was so good for Joseph and the Israelites that in Genesis 47, 5 through 6, this is what we find. Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you, and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brother in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen. And if you know of any among them with special ability, put them in charge of your livestock. So Joseph uh, connected himself to the Pharaoh, politically helped the Pharaoh out. And as a result, Joseph is living in the gated community of Beverly Hills called Goshen. Life is really good for Joseph and his family until it wasn't. In Genesis 3.15, God tells Adam and Eve this. This is the first messianic text, which is to say the first Old Testament passage about the Messiah and what the Messiah will do when he comes. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What God is telling Adam and Eve is this, because you've disobeyed me, because you've chose autonomy over community, your relationships are going to be in tension. You are going to have relational conflict with each other, with your children, with your children's children for the rest of your life. And think about this, like what's one of the first families that we read about in Genesis? Cain and Abel, man, right? Like, it's already a Jerry Springer show, right in the beginning of Genesis. You have families gutting each other, killing each other, being jealous. And the same is true, right? The same is true with Joseph, right? Joseph's dad really loves him. Uh, Joseph gives him, his father, Jacob, gives Joseph a really nice coat. His brothers get really, really jealous, and they decide to sell him into slavery, Right? under the Egyptian rule and reign of Pharaoh. And for us, especially if you've never been politically oppressed or suppressed, we can just like read over that. Think, think of, guys, think about the dysfunction in a family 
where a few brothers hate one brother so much that they sell him into slavery. This would be the equivalent of Nathan and I, or Graham and I, selling one of our other brothers into human sex trafficking. This human sex trafficking is modern-day slavery, and it happens all the time throughout the country, right? God was not lying. He tells us, you are going to have relational strife, and it's going to be hard to live together. And the same is true for Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery, but what, what his brothers meant for evil, God made it good, and he rose up into power, and he helped Pharaoh with all the things that I had just mentioned, and now Joseph and a handful of the Israelites are living a posh life in Goshen. And this is where we pick up in Exodus chapter 1. A few hundred years have passed from Genesis 50 to Exodus 51. Uh, Joseph is dead. His brothers are dead. The, his, his whole entire generation is completely wiped out. Life was really good until it wasn't. So if you have your Bibles or a smart device, go with me to Exodus chapter 1. We're going to read the first 10 verses uh, here in just a minute. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zerubbabel, and Benjamin, Dan and, Dan and Natali, God and Asher, the descendants of Jacob, numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Here's verse 6, the transitional statement. Now Joseph and all of his brothers and all of that generation had died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful, right? They're, they're, uh, they're fulfilling the promise all the way back in Genesis. And the, the Hebrew understanding of exceedingly fruitful is the, the picture that you should have is like when you, I don't know if you ever do this, but if you approach a beehive and you see all these bees buzzing around, the Israelite population is flourishing in Egypt. They multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So if you're a Jewish, if you're an Israelite, this is good news. Like you're obeying um, God's commands. Things are going well. Um, you live in a really decent part of Egypt, uh, of Egypt. But then verse 8 happens, and things get really, really bad for God's people. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing. A couple hundred years have passed, right? And the Israelites would love to live in the past and hang on to the good old days. But this Pharaoh could care less about Joseph. This Pharaoh is going to get offended by how many Israelites are being born. Let's continue to read. A new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. Pharaoh, does this sound familiar with the Christmas story in Herod? It should right? Because Jesus is a greater Moses. Pharaoh is getting angry. And the reason why he's getting angry is because of, of his underdeveloped heart, his lack of spiritual formation, because Pharaoh is insecure. Pharaoh is insecure. 
He, he, he doesn't, he's not just interested in population control. He doesn't want to lose his seat. He doesn't want to be overthrown and definitely doesn't want to be overthrown by a bunch of shepherds, those Israelites. Now, if you're, if you're unfamiliar with Exodus, Pharaoh isn't a name of a guy. It's a political position. And it's also a representation of Egyptian, different Egyptian political entities. So to say that Pharaoh hated the Israelites would be to also say, like without saying it, there is an entire government completely opposed to God's people for fear that they would keep populating, they would keep flourishing, hook up with another country and overtake the Egyptian empire. And so this is what Pharaoh decides to do in verse 11. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built uh, Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. Pharaoh enslaved a group of people to build his cities. Institutional racism, hatred for a people group, right in the beginning of the book of Exodus. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. You see this all the time in the Bible, especially in the book of Acts. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all of their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. In case you forgot the first time, we're being reminded again. Life was really good for the Israelites until it wasn't. The Israelites are experiencing, and I know there's, there can be a disconnect with our culture and the Israelites in, in Exodus. There are three kinds of slavery that the Israelites are facing. The first one is political, right? There's an entire people group, nation, um, uh, governmental entities that are against the Israelites, we know that sin uh, is uh, individualistic and that individual people can commit sin, 100%, right? It's all, well, it's all throughout the Bible, but Romans is a great book, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then if you actually get into the Hebrew scriptures, if you actually understand or want to understand Jewish culture in the first century, sin is not just individualistic, church, it's communal, that the way you live your life impacts my life. Leviticus 4 says um, that when the high priest sins, he brings guilt on the entire nation. Like, what? Like, if the pastor's not living right, why do I get nailed for it? <laughs> because sin also has communal impact and effects. So if, if I can individually commit sin, and then I can corporately commit sin with a group of people, I definitely can institutionally sin and oppress a group of people. What did God tell Adam and Eve? I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
And Satan, one of the themes that you're going to see in the Bible, Satan, our enemy, our adversary, our, he is constantly using political figures and entities, right, to crush and oppress God's people. It's Pharaoh and Exodus. It's Herod and the Gospels because they do not want to be overthrown. The second kind of slavery is economical, right? The New Testament talks about sin in this way, that when I sin, I have a debt. I'm indebted to somebody, right? And that somebody, if you read the scriptures, is God, my heavenly father. And the only way that I can pay for my sin apart from Jesus, because you can go to heaven without Jesus. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, But the way that you do that, some of you looked up, welcome. The way that you do that is you have to live a perfect life, a perfect life. Now, who among us in here is perfect? right? Nobody is. Why? Because you all went through middle school. Nobody's perfect. We need a deliverer. We need a savior. The third kind of slavery that the Israelites are facing is political, economical, but it's also spiritual, right? I just talked about this a second ago. There are spiritual, there's spiritual warfare going on in the midst of the Israelite people, Right? Pharaoh isn't just doing this for population control. Pharaoh is a demonic figure in the Old Testament that is trying to wipe out the population of the Israelites. Here are three things that the Pharaoh hates. The Pharaoh hates uh, God's people. The Pharaoh hates God's promises. And the Pharaoh hates God's plan. I have found that to be true with my friends that are not Christians. Now, I don't know that they would downright say, I hate God, um, but Christians get made fun of a lot. Sometimes we, we deserve it. Uh, but what I want you to see here is that people that are adverse to the gospel are often people that hate God's people, they hate God's promises, and they hate God's plan. This is exactly what Pharaoh was trying to do to the Israelites by eliminating or minimizing the population of Israel so that his little empire could stay protected. And to think about this, that the Egyptians gave up their staff, their shepherding positions for bricks. Shepherds were a joke in the Old and New Testament. They were the lowest of the low. Nobody took them very seriously. They were loners. They didn't shower a lot. They were by themselves. They probably talked to themselves a lot when they were walking their sheep from point A to point B. And Pharaoh thought these people would be easily overtaken. So he took their staff away, and they gave, he gave them bricks, and he said, build my city. Verse 17 or verse 15, Moses continues with the story. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shepar and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. Some pretty awesome women. 
They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Verse 19, the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. (laughs) Jesus said, be innocent as a dove and shoot as a serpent, right? I love this. Verse 20, and you can argue if God's rewarding, rewarding them for lying over lunch with your family. I'm not going to, I don't have time to go there today. Verse 20, so God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more <laughs> numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all of his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born to you must be thrown in the Nile, but let every girl live. This was government-approved genocide towards the Israelite people. Why? Because Pharaoh did not want to give up his seat. Pharaoh did not want to give up his position, and he was threatened. So why go after boys? Well, the boys would grow up to become young men, and young men have an opportunity to uh, join the the military. And uh, Israel has an opportunity that if enough men join the military and we train them well, they can overthrow the Egyptian empire, right? Uh, Hebrew women could easily be assimilated into Egyptian society through intermarriage, and bloodlines and statuses were continued through male lineages. And an attempt on the part of Pharaoh and the seed of the serpent to thwart the promise of a male redeemer. Of a male redeemer. God was already thinking about his people in Exodus chapter 1. That what the enemy meant for evil, for bad, for annihilation, God will turn into good. And the reason why we need the book of Exodus, and I get it, if you've never read it, that's fine. The reason why we need the book of Exodus is because we don't think our sin has enslaved us as much as it actually has. We need the book of Exodus because we don't realize the stronghold that the enemy has in our lives. Sure, there's not a real pharaoh ruling in America, but there are influences in our lives that if we aren't careful, we give ourselves to, we can easily be enslaved to them. We need the book of Exodus because we think we're too educated, we're too intelligent to be- honestly, honestly, I'm like talking to Christians, to believe that some of this stuff of demonic influence and spiritual warfare could ever happen to us as if a degree, uh, as if multiple degrees in a, sp- a particular field will keep the enemy away. We need the book of Exodus because we need to see God as our deliverer a God that's willing to, to be in the midst of our pain and our suffering and to save us, even because of the sin in our lives and because of the stuff that people have done to us, the oppression that has been done to us. Uh, Jesus says, says, says something very interesting in John chapter 8, which is a head nod to the Old Testament and I think Exodus 1. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. 
Jesus never called anybody a Christian or a non-Christian. He either said you're dead or you're alive. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me. Because you have, oh man, don't let this be true of you. Because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your Father. Jesus tells us the severity of our sin, and our sin puts us in slavery. Our sin puts us in bondage. Just just this morning, just this morning, I heard a story from a gentleman in our church uh, of of a person that he knows uh, has completely destroyed his life, completely destroyed his life, and he's looking at serious jail time. And my friend said, by, lo- by looking at this person, you, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know what was going on in their life and what you know, they stand accused of. I don't have to. I've been doing this for a really long time, and I grew up in a violent household. Jesus says, when we sin and we're not quick to repent of it, we become slaves to our sin, and we think just hiding it, playing hide-and-go-seek, the game that we learned as kids, as long as we stuff it down and as long as we hide it, we're going to be okay. And as foreign and as distant as a bunch of Israelites are getting beaten by Pharaoh and his men seems so far off, yet how many of us right now are stuffing something and would rather suffer in silence than actually share what's going on in our lives. Jesus tells us, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. And yet we play these morality games, right? I became a Christian when I was whatever age, it doesn't matter, but I've done some of these things. How wide do you think God's mercy is, church? Jesus himself, the man, the God-man himself said, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. And here's something that I'm going to, I'll finish with this. I'm going to probably say this every week. The number one question that pastors get, and I get often, is this. How can I love God and keep going back to this habitual sin, this addiction, like whatever that is in your life? Here's why. I don't care when you became a Christian. Here's the answer. When you've been enslaved to your sin longer than you've been living in the freedom of Christ, you're going to act like a slave. You're going to think, God hates me again. I messed up again. God will not forgive me. And Jesus tells us clearly, if you, uh, if you are under the blood of Christ and you've accepted the gospel, right? You've declared that publicly in your baptism. You are saved. You are free. And the, and the reality is, church, is that a lot of Christians, though they've been saved longer than I've been alive, they've not lived in their freedom. And when you're not living in your freedom, what you're going to do is settle in your slavery. This is why we need a God that is not only sovereign, but a God that delivers. 
And Jesus says, if the Son has set you free, you are, you are free indeed. And Exodus did not begin with baby Moses. It began with two strong women that were willing to tell this Pharaoh, God does not kill babies. God is going to redeem the Israelites through our lineage. And their faithfulness began the exodus. I hope you'll come back as we continue to talk about God's provision and God's deliverance for the Israelite community as well as for us as well. Let me pray. Uh, Jesus, thank you so much for uh, this, this, your Old Testament. And to be quite honest, sometimes we don't read it. It's difficult. It's hard to understand. There's names we can't pronounce, so we just give up. Uh, yet you give us this beautiful book. Exodus is the gospel of the Old Testament. It's the, it's the, it's the Romans of the Old Testament. God, we thank you that you are in the midst of the Israelites when they're being oppressed, when they're, when, they're, when they're being brought to their knees and filled with bitterness. God, we thank you that from the beginning of our rebellion, you were already chasing after us. You were already going to deliver your son to us. Lord, right now we just confess that the, the declaration that you gave to Adam and Eve is still true in our lives, that we have tension in our relationships, that we have hatred and anger in our hearts for what, whatever reason. Jesus, we want to rest in that promise where you tell us if we've believed the gospel, then we are saved and we are free. Over the next seven weeks, Jesus, would you teach us how to act and live in our freedom and not act and live in our slavery. Thank you for the beautiful, beautiful truth that is the gospel. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.